So, I mean, I think it's I think it's too early, certainly too early to say democracy is over in Tunisia. Tunisia has a history of beating the odds. It was the only country to come out of the Arab Spring as a democracy. And despite a difficult political environment in the country, civil society groups were able to come together and keep the government stable and democracy in place. However, the future of Tunisia's democracy is at risk after the events of July 25th, when Tunisian President Saeed suspended parliament and dismissed the prime minister. What spurred this decision? And what does this move mean for Tunisia's stability and democracy in the long run? Joining me today to discuss these questions and more is Dr. Sarah Yerkes. Sarah Yerkes is a senior fellow in Carnegie's Middle East program, where her research focuses on Tunisia's political, economic, and security developments, as well as state-society relations in the Middle East and North Africa. Yerkes is a former member of the State Department's policy planning staff, where she focused on North Africa. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. All right, Dr. Yerkes, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Thank you for having me. All right. So my first question is, before we discuss the recent political crisis in Tunisia, i like to discuss Tunisia's recent political history. Tunisia was the only country that emerged as a democracy from the Arab Spring protests back in 2011, and has since been hailed as the sole success story of the Arab Spring. How has its politics and democracy developed since then? Sure. So Tunisia was uh, did enter this period right after the Arab Spring, end of 2010, early 2011, and Tunisia, first of all, you know, democratic transitions are messy. So Tunisia did not have this kind of clear, smooth path over the past decade. They had a lot of fits and starts to get where they are today. And the first big challenge for Tunisia was writing its constitution. The country first elected what was called the National Constituent Assembly in 2011. And this was basically the parliament, but their main task was to write the constitution. And this, of course, is not an easy task. You know, you're coming out of a really closed-off autocracy, a country where there was really no room for political debate. And then suddenly you're having all these people representing all sorts of different viewpoints, having to sit together in a democratic fashion and come up with what's going to be this framing document for this new phase of Tunisia's history. So there were a lot of challenges, and it took Tunisia much longer, I think, than they anticipated that it would. But eventually, uh, they were able to agree on the constitution at the beginning of 2014. And then they held their first real uh, parliamentary elections, where they brought in their first regular parliament that wasn't just this body tasked with the constitution, um, as well as their first kind of, they'd had a president in 2011 as well. But this this new phase in 2014 kind of normalized democracy a little bit more. And they had, uh, again, a new parliament and a new president. Um, And then from then, they sort of, were plodding along up until 2019, where they had the latest elections that brought to power the current president that I'm sure we'll we'll talk about in a bit. Um, but just to go back a tiny bit, you know, again, I mentioned that things were messy. This period during the constitution writing, it was not only difficult to kind of come to agreement on the various issues that were important to Tunisia. There were a couple of really severe challenges that I think are important for us to understand where Tunisia is today. And one of them was that the government at the time, uh, the 2011 government, was led by Anahda, which is the Islamist party. They're one of the parties that's still a major player today. And they, this is important because they started getting a lot of the blame. Um, even back from 2011 going forward, for all the challenges and the problems that Tunisia faced. So 
there were a couple of kind of very serious fights. There were some terrorist attacks. Two leftist political figures were assassinated in 2013. So things were, you know, really not looking good for the survival of Tunisia's democratic experiment. But in the end, what kind of saved Tunisia, and again, I think this really matters for when we're sitting here in 2021, um, is that it wasn't the politicians that kind of brought Tunisia back onto the democratic path. It was civil society organizations. So there were these four major civil society groups, the UGTT, which is the French acronym for the main Tunisian labor union, the general labor union, UTICA, which is the French acronym also for um, the employers union, the Bar Association, and the League of Human Rights. And these four organizations that wouldn't normally be the kind of people who would sit together at a table, they don't wouldn't normally agree with each other, they came up with a roadmap, a national dialogue that helped bring Tunisia back to democracy, to end it with a technocratic government, Nahda stepped down. Um, and I don't want to get into too much detail because I know we want to focus on today, but just to kind of set the stage for one of the possibilities of how we might get out of the situation today, kind of leave it there. All right. So it seems like Tunisia's had a pretty rocky history with this democracy then, even with this sort of unusual coming together of these civil society groups. But how is this, um, how is the political history that we just talked about of Tunisia, how has that led up to the election of the current president of Tunisia, Kais Saeed? Why was he elected and what have been his main goals in office? So Kais Saeed uh, ran in the 2019 elections, the most recent elections, as really an outsider candidate. There were a whole bunch of people who ran for president. Uh, and, you know, at the beginning, you know, I should say Tunisia, you know, it's not kind of like the two party system that we have in the United States. There were, I think, 20 something candidates who ran for president, all representing different sort of political views. Um, Kaiside himself doesn't have a political party. He ran as an independent. He didn't really campaign a lot. He would kind of go around to coffee shops and sit down and talk to people. He really saw himself and continues to see himself as like a man of the people. And so when he um, was elected, a lot of people were surprised. You know, some of the people he ran mm-hmm. against, some of the other uh, candidates that were vying for president were much more known. There was, for example, the sitting prime minister, Yusuf Shahed was one of the candidates. There was the sitting defense minister who resigned from being defense minister in order to run, but, you know, well-known figure. And they put their first candidate ever for president up. Um, so Said was kind of uh, kind of this outlier, this, this outside figure. And that's why he did so well. He ended up winning, you know, dramatically. He one in the second round of elections, you have to get 50% of the vote. So there's usually a runoff. He ended up with 70% of the vote in the end, um, over 70% of the vote. And so he, you know, I think we can kind of characterize him as being a part of this global wave of populists. I mean, I think he is a populist. And, you know, this was something that was sweeping the United States with our own election of Donald Trump, as well as Europe. We saw a lot of kind of similar figures, people who explicitly rejected the traditional political order, who weren't traditional politicians, who didn't have any sort of political background, those kind of people were getting elected all over the globe. And this happened in Tunisia as well. Um, his main issue that he ran that he ran on and that he continues to really push for is fighting corruption. Tunisia was a kleptocracy under the Ben Ali regime. They, you know, even 10 years in, continue to suffer from a lot of endemic corruption as well, petty corruption, as well as some of these kind of mafia-like structures that the country has been trying to dismantle, but they haven't fully dismantled yet. 
And so for Said, I mean, this really appealed to a lot of people when he came in. He's a constitutional law professor, someone who just really said he wanted to root out all the corruption in Tunisia. Um, and that message resonated with a lot of people. That really buoyed his popularity and, and brought him into the presidential seat. Right. And so President Said seems like this incredibly, almost unprecedentedly popular president. So that leads me to sort of the most recent event that has happened in Tunisia, which is on July 25th, President Said pulled a shocking move to the international community to enact Article 80 of Tunisia's constitution, which suspended parliament for 30 days and dismissed the prime minister. So can we backtrack a little bit and talk about what exactly led up to this decision? Sure. So one of the big things that happened in 2019 as well, I mentioned the presidency, but there's also the parliamentary elections. Now, this parliament that came in this time, again, also kind of reflecting this wave of frustration with traditional politics, it brought in a really fractured parliament. So Anasa, which had the most seats of any party, only had about a quarter of the seats in parliament. So they had to kind of cobble together a coalition in order to govern that was all sorts of people representing kind of different views. I mean, the parliament in general, there were many, many kind of individuals who came in, independents who weren't really tied to a party, just occupying one seat. Um, so you, what you had, you had this kind of recipe for polarization, you know, rather than in the past, Tunisia, again, it's not a two-party system, but they it's largely, the parliament's largely been kind of dominated by a couple of larger parties who were able to form their own consensus government, come together, try to work together. This time around, it was different. Not only did you have a whole bunch of kind of individuals and, and very small parties with disparate interests, but then you also had some extremist parties come in this time around, one of which is the Karama Coalition, who is um, a Salafist party, kind of more conservative, more um, pro-Islamist than Anahda. Uh, and then on the other side of things, you had this party called the PDL, the um, Free Distorian Party, led by a woman named Abir Musi, who is really wants to return to the Ben Ali era and is staunchly anti-Islamist. So when you have this very Islamist party and then this completely anti-Islamist party sitting in parliament together, you know things get messy. And both of these groups, you know, have they've ended up in fistfights in the floor of parliament. You know, setting the scene where, again, you have this just kind of really polarized environment there. On top of that, you have the prime minister, Hisham Mashishi, who was handpicked by President Said. President Said brought him in just almost a year ago, last September, in order to, he replaced the, the previous prime minister, who there were allegations of corruption against him. But they brought in Hisham Mashishi in order to be someone who could really kind of do Saeed's bidding and sort of be be his person, this technocrat. He wasn't supposed to be politically affiliated. But almost from day one, the president and the prime minister were at each other's throats. I mean, they were just did not get along. A lot of this was over the, the president's belief that the prime minister was too close to Anahda, that he wasn't actually, you know, he's being a little bit more independent than he should be, um, according to the president. So they, you know, from the beginning were actively undermining each other, un, excuse me, actively undermining each other in a very public way. Like they would go on TV and criticize each other. They would take actions that would kind of try to undercut the other one. So you have this really toxic environment. Now throw into this the, the COVID-19 pandemic, which has hit Tunisia, Tunisia incredibly hard. They have one of the highest numbers of death rates in all of Africa. Um, they are finally starting to make some progress. There's some good news on that front today. But you know, when we look at kind of the, the months leading up to July 25th, what we saw was 
people who were rightly very frustrated and angry that their government couldn't address the pandemic. You know, they're seeing other countries around the world where numbers are going down, where people are kind of back to normal in a way, and they're stuck on lockdown or, you know, seeing people dying because they can't get access to hospitals or to oxygen. It was a really terrible situation. And then you add on top of that, the economic situation that again was really kind of decimated by the pandemic. You had the tourism industry that that makes up a good chunk of Tunisia's GDP that you know was really unable to operate for two different summers because of the pandemic, um, unemployment skyrocketing again related to the pandemic, and so you have this really kind of just boiling cauldron where every possible thing is sort of going wrong at the same time. So there was a, a movement of people that went into the streets. July 25th is Tunisia's national day, like their Independence Day. Um, you had a bunch of, of activists who and Tunisian people who went into the streets uh, to demand change. And they they the protests were getting kind of out of hand, sort of getting violent. And you had the president then go on TV and announce that he was going to issue this emergency declaration and fire the prime minister, freeze the parliament, suspend parliamentary immunity, all sorts of things that um, that seem to be very, you know, not really outside of his normal power. And it's unclear whether or not, uh, I mean, it appears that he's operating illegally, but there's been a lot of support because of all the factors I just mentioned, because people are so frustrated with everything that's been going on in Tunisia and the lack, the inability of their government to address any of these issues for so long. Uh, you know, people, the kind of tagline that I've heard that I really think is appropriate is, is this democratic? No. Do Tunisians want it? Yes. And I, I think that's understandable. Right. And so it seems kind of a little bit shocking or unprecedented to people maybe reading the news that reactions from Tunisian citizens are somewhat positive to this, um, what many have called a coup, because, you know, in a lot of our associations, a coup is not a good thing. But I'm just wondering, is there sort of a, di- a, di- a diversity of thought between what Tunisian citizens think of this move? Evidently, many think that it's a good thing and sort of like needed in the crisis that Tunisia is currently facing. But is there worry among some Tunisians about democratic backsliding or, you know, a disapproval of the president's actions? Yes, there is certainly a camp um, of varied people. It's not just all like one certain political party or one certain group that is against what he's doing. I mean, most clearly, Inahda and their supporters have been very much against this. They are the ones who are kicked out. Some of one of their former ministers is now under house arrest. Some of their MPs have been arrested as well. You know, they are certainly the ones with the most to lose and the ones that are frankly getting all the blame for everything that went wrong. So uh, it's not surprising that they would be very much against this and vocally against it. Although their position has moderated over it's been about 2 weeks I guess now that the, since this first happened um and over time, you know, Anasa came out really kind of swinging against President Said and now they've sort of said, "All right, we're going to give the president some time and we're a democracy, like, let's see what happens, basically. Um, But on the other side, other people who are against this, there are a lot of people, you know, especially, I think, kind of the middle age generation, maybe. So the youth have been largely supportive of Said. They've always been his big supporters. And I think for them, I mean, first of all, they're the ones who are really suffering from unemployment. They're the ones that are kind of the most desperate and just want some sort of change, they are kind of willing to give him the benefit of the doubt and see where things go. But this, I think that, you know, the 40-ish, 50-ish year olds um, who are maybe have 
really experience what it's like under Ben Ali, who suffered the most under Ben Ali, people, you know, who are maybe a little bit more um, experienced in the study of transit, democratic transitions and history. And they are worried, not everyone, but, you know, a good chunk of them are, are very concerned about what this means for Tunisia's democracy and stability. You know, it's not just about kind of the democratic values question. It's also about this idea that, you know, when you're asking for good governance, when you want to see better education, better health care, you know, better services from your government, better, more equitable delivery of services, the way you get that is not through an authoritarian or one person holding all the power and, you know, being a benevolent dictator and deciding who gets what. The way you get that is through good governance itself. Um, and so I think the people who have the ability to step back and think through this and and try to, you know, a lot of them are scared. A lot of them are not. A lot of them say, this is, you know, again, we're going to give him the benefit of the doubt. He has 30 days. Let's see what happens in those 30 days. And, you know, then we'll kind of judge again after that 30 day period, what the next step is. Um, but so far, you know, if you look at sort of the different things he's done. A lot of the also human rights activists are very, very concerned because what we're seeing is not someone who's putting in place a bunch of stability measures or things that look like they're moving Tunisia towards a new phase and kind of unfreezing the political situation. What you're seeing is a lot of like pretty blatant human rights abuses without a lot to show for it, I guess, at this point. Right. So speaking of that, at about, so when we're recording this podcast, it's been around two weeks since Article 80 was enacted. And you mentioned a little bit of this, but I just want to cover it in a little bit more detail. Has the president taken any significant actions that this emergency power he's enacted allows him? Has he been able to, you know, start untackling corruption as he ran on in his campaign? He has not really made a lot of headway on fighting corruption. Other, I mean, the big thing he did was lifting parliamentary immunity, which means that he can prosecute sitting members of parliament. And so, you know, on the one hand, you could say that, I'm sure there are some members of parliament who have committed corrupt acts and should go through the judicial system. And, you know, if, if there is a case against them, you know, the courts should decide that. And, and if they are guilty, they should, you know, pay the fine or do whatever they need to do um, according to the, the legal system. But what's happening right now is that there's not really a functioning rule of law. He's arrested some judges. Uh, he has frozen the ability of judges to travel so they can't leave the country. Um, so, you know, if you were really concerned about fighting corruption, you don't do it through corruption. You do it in a way that is, you know, use, utilizing the rule of law. Um, and again, you know, it, it's a little bit suspect to me that he would decide that he's going to prosecute all these political opponents. There have been a couple of people, a couple of bloggers who've been arrested as well um, on suspicion, you know, of, of on charges of insulting the president. That's not democratic behavior. That's not the kind of behavior that, you know, the Tunisians fought for a decade ago. Uh, you know, there's a lot of things, again, that are that are quite troubling. The one thing that has been a really positive thing so far um, has been the ability to vaccinate Tunisians. I mean, one of the things, you know, if, if there's a silver lining to all of this right now, it's that it's brought global attention to Tunisia. And I think a lot of the world really didn't know how dire the pandemic was for Tunisia until this all started happening. Some of this had already started under Prime Minister Mashishi was working very, very hard to get a lot of the um, global community to donate vaccines. And they had been doing that. 
Um, but they just had, they've had a lot of success over the past week of vaccinating more and more Tunisians because of the amount of vaccines that are pouring in set up by the program that Hashem Mashishi started, as well as the program that, that Saeed himself has continued. So that's one good thing. Um, but other than that, you know, there's not much you can point to of what he's been able to do, you know, that given he has every possible power in his hands, he should be able to do pretty much whatever he wants. And he hasn't really done anything. So zooming out a little bit to talk more about international relations, what have been reactions from the international community to this move by President Saeed, both by regional powers and from the U.S. and the EU? So looking first at the regional powers, um, Tunisia, you know, over time, over the past decade, has largely been able to avoid some of the kind of proxy battling that the GCC, the Gulf Cooperation countries, have often tried to carry out across the region. Um you know, there's certainly been attempts at manipulating Tunisia, but for the most part, they've stayed relatively out of this. That has all changed in this situation. Uh, so one of the things that we've seen is that Said, in particular is really going after members of Anahda for receiving foreign funding. Um, there's, you know, speculation, There, there's ties that he's pointing to, to Qatar, to Turkey. Um, there's no question that Nahda leadership is is personally close to the Turkish government and, and to people in Qatar, but you know he's basically trying to build this case against them that they're being manipulated by Qatar. On the other hand, you have Said himself, who uh, right before this coup happened, he visited Egypt. He's been very close to Saudi Arabia, to UAE. I mean, there's been no direct evidence saying that any of them had anything to do with his exact actions on July 25th. But you know, I think if the if the shoe were on the other foot and someone was investigating him, you would likely find a lot of ties uh, to the other side of the GCC debate. So you know, you've kind of started this proxy battle again between uh, you know Turkey and Qatar on the one hand, and UAE, Egypt, and Saudi on the other hand, where they're vying for influence in Tunisia, which has the potential to be really destabilizing and really dangerous. Then looking at at the West, looking at U.S. and Europe. Um, there's been a varied response. So I would say the very the f- initial response from the West was quite tepid, where um, most of the countries were basically adopting a wait and see approach, just kind of saying, we're watching the situation, you know, we're concerned, but we're just, we're going to sort of let, see where this goes. Uh, the United States has since really upped its um, engagement with Tunisia over the past couple of weeks. They have come out with several more harshly worded statements, you know, expressing their concern for Tunisia's democracy and for the protection of freedom of expression, the protection of human rights. Um, Europe has been, there hasn't been kind of a single European response. We've seen various European countries, you know, be a little more forward leaning than others, but again, a lot of engagement. And I think, you know, for sure, Europe and the United States are really paying close attention to what happens here and engaging with President Said as much as they can in order to make clear that, you know, they support Tunisia. They have, you know, both Europe and the United States have invested billions and billions of dollars into Tunisia over the past decade to help its democratic transition succeed. Um, they they want Tunisia to be successful. They want to see the continuation of the democratic transition and so are willing to do that, but but are not going to be supportive if, if this president takes a turn towards more authoritarianism. Right. And so if Tunisia does, in fact, become less democratic and potentially more unstable in the long term, what do you think will likely be the consequences for the region? And I think, frankly, there's 
there's a couple of scenarios. I mean, becoming more authoritarian. Um, I don't know. I mean, I think honestly, a lot of Tunisians would put up with a lot if if there's economic growth, if you're starting to see, you know, the pandemic subside. Um, so, sorry, if you're starting to see the, p- the pandemic subside, and you're starting to see positive economic growth, I think, you know, it, you could see yourself in kind of like a Singapore situation where people are willing to put up with authoritarianism, you know, if they feel like their lives are better. Um, as far as, you know, if there's more instability, if, if people's patience does run out, if they don't start to see those kind of change, socioeconomic changes, things, you know, the, the big thing people are frustrated about is, is that, you know, they can't feed themselves, they can't feed their families, they can't find a job. Um, if Said is unable to to fix that on his own and in, in his his one man government, um, you could start to see protests. You could start to see a lot of anger and frustration, which could lead to more people trying to migrate to Europe. You could try to see. You could see more people, you know, getting so frustrated they they take the terrorism route, as we've seen in the past in Tunisia. Um, you know, there's a lot of really dangerous scenarios. I don't think. We're anywhere close to that. I don't think Tunisia will get to that, but that possibility is always out there. So going back to talking about the um, the July fifth Article eighty being enacted, um, in your opinion, what comes next for Tunisia after these thirty days of parliament suspension are up, and what's the most likely course of action? the most likely next course of action from the president after these 30 days? I think it's highly likely we will see the 30-day period extended for another 30 days. Um, president Said has already gone on in TV. He's issued a presidential decree stating that he can do that, which, again, it's not clear he really can legally, but he says he can. And right now he's the only man with a vote, voice, so he can, I guess. Um so I think there's a real possibility that that will happen, that, you know, when this 30 days ends in a couple of weeks, that he will say, I need more time. And then the question becomes, do people give him that time and who gives him that time and whose patience has run out? We've heard, for example, from the main labor union, who's a very, very powerful political actor, that they said he has 30 days and that's it. After that 30 days, there's going to be a problem. But we'll see. I mean, I, I don't know. They might be willing to, to give him more time. Um, the other thing, the other possible scenario, I mean, this is would not be from the president himself, but I think is re- a real possibility is, you know, we've seen so far some of these main civil society organizations are themselves in discussion. They're holding their own kind of dialogue to come up with what they see as the best roadmap forward. And I think this is, you know, could be a really positive outcome for Tunisia if we see that civil society, like I mentioned at the beginning, once again, comes in to kind of save Tunisia or comes in to really express the voice of the people. These groups are in touch with the Tunisian public much more so than President Said is. If they are able to come up with a plan to address the economic challenges, if they're able to come up with a, you know, maybe they have new elections, maybe they have a constitutional referendum and change the electoral law, things the president has put forward, but in a way that actually reflects the voice of the people, that could be a really positive step forward for Tunisia and could have the potential to kind of unstick the situation from where it is today. Um, the president would likely, you know, he would have to sign on to that and agree to that. And it's unclear if he would do that. But I think there are some, there's some potential for some at least positive short-term scenarios to come out of this. But again, I think the most likely situation in the short term is that he's going to say he needs more time. I mean, he still hasn't even announced 
the prime minister something he said he was going to do a day after July 25th. And, and it's now been two weeks and he hasn't done that yet. So I think we're going to start to need, need to start to, well, I think we're going to need to start seeing some, some action from him other than just arresting people and firing people, which is the vast majority of what he's done so far. Mm-hmm. And just, I know it's still early days in this whole situation, but just to wrap us up, what, in your opinion, does the current situation in Tunisia foreshadow about the future of democracy in the country? Is it still too soon to tell, or does the current trends of, you know, the president being in an authoritarian position seem likely to continue? So, I mean, I think it's, I think it's too early, certainly too early to say democracy is over in Tunisia. Um, you know, I tend to be quite optimistic about Tunisians to address their challenges, to bring the country back um, into, you know, a Tunisia that they want to see and they want to live in and that they're proud of. And I think that we've seen time and time again, the Tunisian people, again, not the political leaders, but the Tunisian people who have taken the reins and said, okay, this is what we want. This is how we want things to move forward. And, um, you know, I think the fact you are, there's many, many troubling signs for democracy right now, but I think the fact that you are able to basically still criticize the government for the most part that you are, um, you know, able to kind of talk through some of these scenarios that shows that there is at least some function of democracy happening right now. You know, again, we'll, we'll see this, this 30 day mark is going to be the first big challenge. Um, so yeah, I don't know. We'll kind of see what happens, what happens going forward. But I, I don't think it, I think it's far too early to say that Tunisian democracy is over. I think transitions are messy. That's the thing that we've known. Anyone who's, you know, looked at any transition around the world can see that this is not, you know, a, a totally unique situation. And I do think Tunisia can, can overcome this and can maybe even be strengthened by this if they're able to actually get at the, these root issues of corruption and the economy and, and addressing some of the socioeconomic inequalities that have been plaguing the country since long before the revolution. Dr. Yerkes, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for speaking with me today. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. We hope you enjoyed it. We would like to say thank you to the International Studies Program at Johns Hopkins University and the SNF Agora Institute at Johns Hopkins University for making this episode possible. Remember to follow us on social media at Hopkins POFA on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook for the latest and greatest of Hopkins POFA content. Hit follow on Spotify, subscribe on iTunes, and leave a rating. We'll see you next time.